This week, the Kathleen Folbig inquiry began again in Sydney. Folbig was convicted in 2003 for the deaths of her four children. It's a case which has really engaged the whole scientific community, which is interested in how science is treated in the judicial process, and a particularly complex science it is too. But what about how scientists themselves perform in court? It's often an alien world, but ultimately the scientific process of inquiry and replicating data should help courts create fairer justice. In this Cosmos Insight, we talk to Professor Adrian Lineker, the former head of the Australian and New Zealand Forensic Science Association, and who is now the chair of forensic science at Flinders University. I'm Ian Mannix, and I'm with Professor Lineker. Professor Lineker, you've got a bit of a history in presenting science at court. Yes, I entered forensic science in 1994. I've been very much involved with DNA profiling, as well as blood pattern, crime scene reconstruction, body fluids. So I've been involved since 1994, given evidence in something around about over 100 cases in six different jurisdictions. So Undoubtedly, I've been very much involved in giving evidence. I've been an academic, uh, but very much during my time at Strathclyde University in the centre of Glasgow, I did a lot of criminal casework as well. And that's where so much of my experience was gained, either working for prosecution or defence. So it is interesting in our system, you do work for one side or the other, but we should all be working for the court. For the cause being science. Yes, indeed. I mean, the science is the science. Whether you're instructed by prosecution defence, you're still providing a scientific um, report, which hopefully is a transparent document. Sure, and in many cases people are asked to sign or abide by a code of conduct once they get to the court, which relates to science as well. That has been the case all throughout my operational life, is that There's different codes of conduct, for for instance, when I was in Glasgow, compared to here, but they largely say the same thing. The first point of a code of conduct is you work independent, you work for the court, you gain no no financial gain depending on the outcome of a court decision. I mean, that would be completely wrong. Even if you're working, for example, you've been called to court by the defence or the prosecution, you still have to remain impartial. Absolutely. You you do remain impartial. Now, that is the case. But there is the proviso, is that when you're listed as an expert witness for the prosecution or defence, you're at the behest of their questions in evidence in chief and then at cross-examination. They will lead you through the evidence and normally the evidence they want to hear and put questions to you in a way that they would like an answer back. That's the evidence they want to hear, isn't it? That's right, because clearly they are acting for the prosecution or acting for the defence. Their role in the legal process is different to that of scientists. But when you're giving evidence as a scientist in the legal environment, you are at the best of their system. The legal process has been in place for a lot, lot longer than anything to do with forensic science. So that is their environment. But it's interesting, isn't it, because scientists are also inquiring. So what's the difference between inquiring in a court and inquiring in a laboratory or a research project? It's a very good question, because we always ask the question, why? And we try and set up experiments to challenge that question, why? Sometimes we just don't know. 
And we have to admit, we don't know. But that doesn't work when you're in the criminal environment, giving evidence in court. So it is a very different environment when you're working in the laboratory doing research compared to giving evidence in court. You're very constrained giving evidence in court. When you write a statement, it is not like writing a scientific report. They are, their formats are incredibly different. There are, and that obviously is an issue for academics who are then asked out of a blue to help with a criminal case. Never done it before. Never known how to format a statement, let alone when you're suddenly giving evidence in court. It's not like a conference. It's a completely different environment. It's a very challenging environment. So there are issues all involved with when someone who from is in academia is assisting the criminal case, a criminal case in one way or another. So we're talking about the prospect here, a very real prospect of dealing with people's lives. Are scientists well equipped to give evidence in court? Well, they should be if they understand what they're doing. But when you're doing research, if one test out of 100 doesn't work, OK, you've got an outlier. Well, in criminal casework, you can't have one statement out of 100 not being fit for purpose. That just doesn't work for us. We cannot and we should never make errors. Of course, everyone's human. There's always the scope for that, right? But the science we present in, in court cannot have uh, uh, error rates which are unacceptable. For us, an error rate is something like 10 to the minus 6 or something. We just can't make errors because someone's liberty, someone's property is at stake. It's a very different thing. And I know when I used to, well, I still do, write statements and sign them and send them, wow, that's something that is going to impact on someone's life. That's very different from when you submit a paper to a journal. And, of course, when you are dealing with a court case like this, the prosecution or the defence is then likely to you know, pounce on an error and try to overturn your good character, your reputation, as has occurs in all of the TV dramas we see, but also occurs in courts quite regularly. It does happen in real life, is that, yes, the other side will pick up on maybe one statement out of a 10-page report, one sentence, and bring that out of all proportion. If it's not well-worded, if there's an issue with it, and that can overcloud the rest of what you're saying. And you are right, that starts to make you look like unprofessional and even just try and undermine you. Try and make sure that the jury think, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, and that is the nature of it. And it is something that as scientists, you know, we're not familiar with that type of environment. We might make a slip when we're talking at conference and one sentence just doesn't come out well. Well, so be it. Out of a 40 minute talk, fair enough. But in criminal casework, unfortunately, that is just pounced upon. I know to my cost. Of course, it's quite a legitimate thing for scientists to be questioned about their work and to, to um, be put under the spotlight. Well, inevitably, in the legal process, that is the case. And that is always has been the case, that you will be under spotlight. Now, I found in all my cases uh, in Europe, I did a lot of evidence around Europe and now in Australia, is that you yourself are not undermined to the same extent as when I gave evidence once in North America. 
when my credentials were looked at ad nauseum. Yeah. Whereas you tend to find in other parts of the world, okay, you're, you're in the courtroom, you're supposed to be an expert. Let's just move on. What are you saying? So the emphasis can be slightly different, the different tacks, but I still find it very challenging when someone tries to undermine you as a person and as the science you're giving. That is something that we are not, not used to. Uh, it's, it's alien to us, but we should reflect on it and give good quality answers. But I, I think training to give evidence in the courtroom is something you would get a lot of if you work for one of the operational labs. If you're an academic, asked to give evidence because you've got a speciality that's needed. If that's the, your first time, you need to learn how to give evidence in court. It's kind of so different. Is it something that you might think that maybe the Association for Australia New Zealand Association for Forensic Science might take up, or is, is it something that should you know stand alone in some of our science courses? Absolutely, um, we now have a professional. A membership category for the first time and certainly at one of the conferences coming up our idea is to put on specialist courses on presenting evidence in court and what what you should do how you should prepare how you should frame your answers how you should respond and your limits of where you should go the problem, of course, becomes when you become too good giving evidence in court and then, as happens in journalism all the time, people perhaps tend not to trust you because you're too good. Is there a balance that needs to be found, uh, mostly built around the character of the person presenting science in court? I think, though, more to the case, if you become, as you say, too good, do you stop doing all the preparation? Do you think, oh, I can manage this, this will be fine? Right. I mean, I say I've given evidence way over 100 times around the different parts of the world. Do I prepare for it? Well, I can quite see that you think oh, I'll be OK here. And that would be the downfall. <laughs> the day you don't prepare is, is, is going to be the day you get your come, comeuppance. From time to time, we hear um, scientists in the media and elsewhere commenting on what goes on in court. It must be a fine line between an advocate for the science and an advocate for either side in the judicial process it certainly is absolutely and we're all human right so if you are asked questions by one side or other you answer them out of fairness and that's what you try and do but clearly though you could be led down a an avenue that that barrister that advocate wishes to go down your job as a scientist is to occasionally think oh no i've got to make sure that i stay within my bounds of knowledge and I make sure I give a balanced answer. However, as I say, we are all human. And I find that those of us giving evidence in court sometimes wish to help the court and therefore start answering and our mouths can move a bit quicker than our brains. And then suddenly, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And there's no coming back from that. There's no coming back from that type of thing. Yes, indeed. So when I do train um, up and coming people, I say, look, that's the statement that I say, your, your mouth can move, move quicker than your brain. So when I'm asked questions in court, I have quite a, of a bit of a pause. I think for one or two seconds, get that answer in my head. I don't want uh, ums, you knows, and just give it. Because there are transcripts. 
And I gave evidence a while back in Oxford Crown Court, and it spanned two days. And on day two, I was presented with a full type transcript of the evidence I gave the day before and questioned on what I'd said. And that did include any uh, ums, mm, uh. <laughs> and so you realize that it doesn't look good. So it is something that you get familiar with is just taking your time, thinking and giving a balanced answer. Do you think there's a role for the forensic scientist helping the court in contacting the the person who's been charged with a crime in order to help with the science? Or is there a barrier that needs to be put up there? I think there needs to be a barrier in that way. I think more importantly, where I think there could be big advantages is if you are instructed by the prosecution or defence and you know that there is another scientist working for the other side, I think there's a massive benefit of the two sides getting together and having a talk. Now, you may be instructed by different people, but surely what you're going to present should be very similar. Now, there are sort of factual information in there, but inevitably, if you're giving evidence in court, it should be an opinion. Now, two people's opinions should be pretty similar. Maybe there's a different nuance, a different slant, but you could agree to disagree or you could agree to agree. And as scientists, that would be a much better environment for us. You know, we can talk around the table between different groupings and come up with, I would suggest, uh, an agreed response. That, it, that would take the pressure off us than trying to talk about the science in a courtroom. Probably also take the pressure off the courtroom. It would do, because the evidence presented would be a lot more accurate, than entirely balanced and based upon more than one person's viewpoint. Does that happen anywhere in the world? Well, we do have a system in Scotland. Now, I'm Scots, although you'd never know it from this accent, right? But I was born there, I brought up there, and I did so much of my professional life there. If I gave my Glaswegian accent, you would have a real bit of a problem. You might need subtitles on this podcast. But we do have that system in Scotland. We call it precognition. So normally two weeks before a trial, you can talk to the other side. It's not under oath. It's not under oath, so um, you could change your story, right? But that would look rather professionally odd. But it gives you the opportunity to explain what it is you've been asked to do, and you can explain what it is you would be prepared to say in court. And that means that there can be a pre preparation by both sides before court starts. Or you could say, Dr Lineker, you're not needed. Thank you. We'll just take that statement. That'd streamline things, wouldn't it? Yes, indeed. I can see certain advantages in that. Now, clearly, from a legal perspective, if you were acting for a defendant, sometimes you just probably wouldn't want that. There may be something from the legal point of view that you think, I'd rather make most of one part of the evidence and try and gloss over the other. The uh, approach to be taken there is get back to the science, I guess, rather than the... Uh, adversarial nature of the judicial system? Well, the inquisitorial system that operates in most of mainland Europe has certain advantages. Uh, I think one thing, having operated in, in um, that part of the world, is that you don't have often uh, an expert working for the other side. You just have one scientist presenting evidence. Sounds good, and there are a lot of advantages to it. 
The only disadvantage, as I see it, is that when you look at what's being presented as an external reviewer type work, let's just say you can do that for the defence if you had the opportunity, you might question a few things. You might say, well, actually, you've been only provided by the information from the prosecution. So inevitably, you provided evidence based upon what you have been told. Were you told any alternative scenarios? Which is what you would get from the defence. So you can see that it's not a perfect system by far. If it was, I think we'd all have it. As a general um, rule, do you find that the courts around the world are well-equipped to deal with extremely complex science? Not at all. And I think science, my area, is getting more and more complex. Forensic science and DNA. Forensic science in particular for what we do. Um, some of the work we do is now something that you'd need four or five years of university to really understand. And I've been asked by counsel right to the start, can you please summarise the science to the jury in the next few minutes? And I'm thinking, how on earth can I do that? when you'd normally use, need a four-year degree to, ex to understand the science. And that's not a criticism of anyone's knowledge. It's a very specialist thing we have. Because it's specialist, it's very difficult for us to explain certain parts of what we do to the jury. It is a challenge. It is what we should be able to strive to do, but it can be very complex. And I know that when you're giving evidence, you can see sometimes jury's eyes glazing over. And whose responsibility then is it to get their eyes to open up? Is it the prosecution, the defence or the scientist who's delivering that information? I, I, I would hope that the scientist is able to try and instil interest in what we're saying. But, you know, sometimes at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon in court, that's not easy. Everyone is human. So there's some doubt over whether or not courts can deal with the complexity, but what about when we get down to the individuals in the court, the actual scientists? You said earlier that they're not always well-equipped, perhaps a little extra training and other bits and pieces, but um, have you seen uh, the judicial system undermined by the performance of the scientists? I think sometimes the, the scientists can appear and, and give evidence that I think um, if, it's, if it's really complex stuff, and it is almost definitive that can cloud any other evidence that the jury hear. The jury might think, God, what he said, I, just, I, I will believe them and I'll not believe anything else. I think sometimes when that is given, that can be the de detriment of other information being provided. That's my only issue on that. I think the big example there is DNA, isn't it? I think the courts now are, are being told that there's, you know, one in a million chance that this DNA does or does not belong to the individual at question. And so we're giving people a, an array of opportunities and options to believe in the science rather than simply saying, well, that DNA proves that that person was in that place at that time. Well, that's right. I mean, we do give almost astronomic figures now, one in 100 billion or something, huh. right? And it is just mind-blowing. I just think then that jury probably make that leap, well, the DNA almost certainly came from them. Now, that's not what we're saying, but it's almost human nature to do so. The other problem we've got, though, is that science moves on, doesn't it? Early DNA would have been different science to DNA of, you know, the last 24 hours and early research different to the science of the last few months. Because science is moving at a different pace, 
the courts aren't moving. They can only take uh, their evidence at a, a point in time. That seems to me to be a fairly fundamental clash. Oh, it is an issue. Uh, that's the nature of science, though, isn't it? Is that science does move forward. We build upon, we build upon. And when I look at when I started in 1994, you know, we looked at four regions of what we think is variable DNA. We now look at 24. When we started, we needed oh, three or 400 cells. Now, two or three cells. Things have changed enormously. Um, and that's the nature, I think, of science. We strive to get better and better. In this case, better and better means more and more sensitive. In effect, we work off much less and more discriminatory. Fewer and fewer people in the world would have that same DNA profile. So in some ways, we think that's excellent. In other ways, we just need to make sure that the jury, what do they take from it? What do they understand from it? So from my point of view, I'd say, OK, let's just assume that that's a really high probability of a match. The next question is, you need to think about what does that mean? How did it get there? When did it get there? DNA can't tell you that. You need to think about that. That needs to be presented to you in a very clear manner and explain, all right, what are the other reasons why you might have that DNA? And that's what I'm thinking is the very first case of DNA profiling ever in Scotland, way back in 1989 it is, or 88, actually when the DNA evidence was found later on at the uh, Court of Appeal, which I was involved with, to be questionable. But when given evidence in court, it overclouded even the defendant saying, I don't think that person is the accused, is the person who did it. Right, later on, we found the science was not perfect. Now, I would say now the science is really excellent, but, but any case that involves a human, i.e. collecting a sample at a crime scene, writing down a, a number on a tube, in some way or another being involved in the process, we're all fallible. We can all make mistakes. So I think, uh, and, and that's nature. Look, I mean, I don't think any lab in the world is going to be 100% perfect. That is just almost impossible to do. We strive not to. But I think you need to make sure that the science is as, as good as it can be, but understand that anything involves a human, we need to bear that in mind. Professor Adrian Lineker from Flinders University, thank you for talking to Cosmos today. Thank you. Delighted. You can read more about Science in the Dock and the Folbig trial on our website, cosmosmagazine.com. This podcast is produced by the Royal Institution of Australia in Adelaide on Ghana land. The Royal Institution of Australia is a not-for-profit whose sole mission is to communicate science widely as the key to a better world. We do this through our stories, which are turned into educational resources, teaching the scientists of tomorrow about the science of today in classrooms across Australia. Support our aim by subscribing to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's premier print science magazine, and Cosmos Weekly, its sister e-publication.